There he is. You hear me now? Got you now, loud and clear. There he is. All right. A hot cup of coffee and ready to go. Yeah, my honey and tea. Honey and tea. <laughs> there you go. I'm still Here. fighting, recovering from a cold. So, well, <laughs> that's not good. Yeah. Pendleton, Martin. I was going to wait and see how long it took yeah. the conversation to get started about Pendleton, but I, I guess it started. <laughs> Since you got a cold, it's medicinal, right? Exactly. <laughs> well, I uh, I do Bailey's and tea, hot Bailey's and tea. That's, that's pretty good. That's not bad. <laughs> I like that too. We were that's hunting that. last. We were hunting last weekend, so of course you have to medicate to be properly prepared for such events. Isn't that why you hunt? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly why I hunt. <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> you can start early and it's legal. <laughs> oh, good. Well, we, we've already pushed the record button, so uh, if we need to edit, we carry can, I guess. But you're being recorded as we speak. Yeah. I'll, see that. I'll try so, to watch my language. Well, <laughs> Carrie's the one that does all the talking. I know he tried to tell you yesterday that I'm the one that talks all the time, but we have to re edit Carrie all the time. Yeah. Well, he, didn't you have trouble, he didn't have any trouble talking last night. I'm not sure what he was drinking, but <laughs> <laughs> pretty loose lip last night. <laughs> well, you talk about editing. I, uh, the last time, well, when we did Troy West there a couple of weeks ago, I, I, I get this audio track up and going and stuff and, and, uh, everything looks looking pretty good. And, and then I, I listen to it and make sure everything sounds okay. And you can adjust the volume and, and whatnot. Well, there was in the three-way conversation, we had Troy and me and you were gone. I was Your gone. track was just gone. I thought, oh, crap. That, what do I do now? We have to throw this whole thing out the window, and and uh, so I kept going, and and it, and uh, finally, a message comes up and said you were corrupt. I was. Yeah. Was corrupted. Yeah, you, you corrupted file. So well, then yeah. I was giggling about that, and then and then uh, when you and I did our deal there yesterday, same thing happened, but I was gone. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to re, I had to download. I don't know what happened. You re-downloaded and I uncorrupted. I had to, I did it over again, and then, then it, then the track, all the tracks showed up. So, but intermittent, uh, inter internet connection probably had something to do with it. I don't know. Well, Schwartz, should you should you give a proper introduction to this? ghost of a man we have on the other other line we haven't even said his yeah name. i wonder if anybody recognizes his voice he's trying to recover from a cold so he probably <laughs> he's maybe not not recognizable so we got the one and only martin black uh, I, I was gonna do an intro something like uh, a little uh, trivia do you know what schwartz means in german i don't it means black Oh yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> oh, there you go. We got, there we, you got go. A, we got a square-headed black and a normal black. 
<laughs> oh, I wonder which one that. <laughs> yeah. The family's had a lot of fun with that name through the years. I'll bet lately, too, with and all with the... this racist stuff going oh, on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, can, I can really raise some eyebrows, but I, <laughs> what can I say? I'm black. I'm, I've been yeah, black all my life. <laughs> Absolutely. Black matters, right? I mean, that's what yeah, you exactly. Black lives matter. <laughs> <For that. laughs> You've been screaming it your whole life, trying to get them to pay exactly. attention. Yeah. This, this whole deal is marketing and branding, which you've done a wonderful job of, but you guys got more, more bullets for the gun now. Yeah. All good. Now, Schwartz lives matter too. So, so there. Yeah, I don't, I don't get this, but anyway, we, we better not. <laughs> We better not go there. We better quit <laughs> while we're ahead. <laughs> not while we're recorded, anyway. <laughs> this will be a very conservative conversation, wouldn't it? I have a yeah. feeling. <laughs> yes, yes. Get into politics, religion, and COVID. And COVID. Be divided with <laughs> opinions. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I mean, we could also uh, throw in. Uh, cows and horses in the great state of texas you know so I, being from texas I, it's like i grew up with co being a covid fan my whole life you can't be from texas and be a cowboy right if you get outside the state so yeah so it's all good all good always always tickle me martin i, I never understood uh, why everybody was all mad about that uh, it's still the same cow and the same horse and the same set of pins we're all trying to get the damn things in there right everybody has Mad about what? It, well, is everybody's mad about a Texan being a cowboy and, and no cowboys there and all that? And it's, it's still the same horse and the same cow trying to put them in the yeah. same set of pins, you know, all trying to do the same thing. Environment is different for sure. And I, I don't know anybody's mad about Texans being cowboys. It's just that they think they're biggest and the best. Well, ex exactly. <laughs> exactly. He said it. Yeah. Well, it's a true, true story. It is true a true story. story. I, was, I was working with this Texan out here in California. And, uh, of course, we're making jokes about each other and, mm -hmm. you know, ribbing each other. And I, I told him the joke about the governor's convention when uh, the uh, Texan was uh, blowing on about being the biggest state and blah, blah, blah. And, and the Alaskan governor uh, said, hey, so, don't play tell that Texan to pipe down or we'll cut Alaska in half and Still make him the third largest state. <laughs> and this kid seriously said, what are you talking about? Texas is the biggest state. And I said, no, it ain't. No. And uh, we went back and forth there for a little bit. And and uh, I said, Alaska is over twice the size of Texas. Oh, it is not. He says, you look at a map and here's the United <laughs> States and here's Texas. And here's Hawaii and Tech and uh, Alaska down here in the corner. Alaska is just a little <laughs> tiny state. <laughs> and this was a college-educated guy. Uh, my goodness, what did you learn in Texas? <laughs> yeah, what did you learn? I didn't even. I didn't even go to college. <laughs> knew that. Huh? I knew Texas wasn't the biggest state. <laughs> uh, my first honeymoon, I went to Alaska, and of course, wearing a hat, I blended right in with everybody. Of course, you know. And, uh, yeah. If you wear a hat, you, you're from Texas, you know. And I, I always, no, I'm not from Texas. I'm Wyoming or Montana. There's other people that wear hats, but anyhow, of course, I got berated, and that was pointed out quickly. Alaska in half is still bigger than Texas. So. 
Oh, it's it's amazing, yeah. It's all good. You know, and I and I never really understood it. Like, so we're Friday night football in Texas and all that. And we're always team oriented, your college, all this stuff. You everybody's a big fan and you're just loyal to the bone in Texas about oh, yeah. whatever, what whatever it is. And and I think it was Scott Hardy told me that. He said, You guys are just so damn loyal, it kind of ticks us off. You know, you right. just you ride for the brand so hard. And yeah, it's a little different. No, and I, I admire that about Texans. Uh, you know, I give them a lot of shit, but I got a lot of good friends down there and whatnot. But you got to rib. I, I rib my neighbors about stuff too. So it's just yeah. you just got. It's not hard to rib Texans about something. It's just nope. they're, they're real vulnerable. So, <laughs> <laughs> so my whole life I've been a Texas Ranger fan, a Dallas Cowboy fan, and a Texas Aggie. Well, you couldn't be three worse teams to let you know to get along. I mean, you're gonna. <laughs> So I've been, I'm used to it. It's all good. Yeah. It's all good. Well, is it cold in your world? Uh, it's getting that way. It's been below freezing here in the mornings for a bit, but, you know, it's been up in the 50s and low 60s here quite a bit uh, this month. So it's pretty pleasant. We've green been... grass is still growing. Can't believe how much green grass we have right now. Well, we do too. It's been wet. It's been a wet couple months and uh we we still have leaves on the trees and we've been down to the 50s and 60s <laughs> not, not up yeah. but down it's in the 40s i irrigate, I irrigate pretty much year round uh just because the creek always runs and we got to spread the water somewhere and uh as long as you get the moisture in the ground you know it, it's it's going to help you in the spring mm -hmm. and uh last few mornings a lot of people have trouble understanding this but you got to break ice to change water <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> it's open open ditch flood irrigating so yeah yeah you got to break the ice to move your water my wife grew up with that she, the little um, farming community in far west texas where it rained nine inches a year but they had an aquifer underneath them where they had three and four thousand gallon a minute wells you know they had big irrigation pumps on big diesel yep. engines and you know 10 inch pipe just shooting water straight out and that's how they irrigated everything at that point back in the day i can remember the big irrigation ditches and pipes all hanging out yep. on stuff now if you don't irrigate in this country it's uh they got like nothing across, across the fence where the sagebrush is greasewood yeah. and everything's high and all we got is sheet grass growing pretty much and so yeah without water there's not much life in this area People, people a lot of time I'm traveling, you know, and they say, where are you from? Idaho. And uh, I'll say Idaho and they'll say Iowa. <laughs> no, no, Idaho. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. He says, that's a pretty state. I said, I'm not from that part. <laughs> <laughs> they think mountain and trees and everything. No, I'm down in the southwest corner with the desert. <laughs> that's corner of the state where a lot of greasewood and sagebrush and a lot of open sea for a long ways down in that country but there's a lot more texture than people realize with canyons and things yeah this corner well southern idaho but but especially this corner is more like nevada and eastern oregon you know as far as mountain ranges and and you know big open valleys where the, a lot of idaho is a Rocky Mountains, basically, you know, just a series mm -hmm. of, of mountains. But uh, this actually from the Snake River 
south, especially in this corner. You know, the Waihee Desert is just south of me. I'm kind of right on the edge of it. And you can go over 200 miles southwest from here to Winnemucca, and you won't hit a paved road till you get right outside of Winnemucca. That's cool. So it's it's a lot of nothing out there. My yeah. my next door neighbor to the west is about 65 miles. That's awesome. And my next wow. door neighbor to the south, you know, depending on your angle, you know, it could be like 200 miles. Wow. That's cool. When I, well, when that's I, home for you, right? Oh, was... uh, yeah. I like it. I can, I, can, I can lock the front gate and I don't have to worry about anybody coming in the back gate. <laughs> <laughs> They're thirsty by the time they get to you anyhow. I'm, I actually, I'm sit, I sit in a canyon here and it's a dead end road here at the house. So, so. when you're, when somebody shows up, they weren't just in the neighborhood. They were coming to see. They're not, you know, they're, they're not going on the way by it anywhere. No. If you well, see somebody coming up the road, they're, they're either lost and I've kind of got the people lost run out of here you know the covid thing and this ranch was empty for a few years uh my great aunt and uncle had it for for over 50 years 60 years i guess and then when they died i bought it from the estate and, but it said idle for a few years and the, the public just kind of helped themselves to it like it was a park you know these town people they they don't understand private property a lot of them they just think it's a, a park or something to them and so it took me a year or two to train on them a little bit and put up some pretty pretty loud barking signs at the front gate. But, but I, I don't get many visitors now unless they're friends or business or something like that coming to see me. Sorry, do you have BLM around you, government land around you? Or? Yeah, there's six miles of creek here, uh, about 1,200 acres. But it's all, you know, it's, it's only... Uh, a quarter mile wide, 40s, you know, a series of 40s. There's a, just a few places, there's two 40s side by side, but yeah, I'm surrounded by BLM. So I got my own little skinny island here, which yeah. makes it kind of nice. Yeah, for Don't sure. have to worry about the neighbor's dog barking. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Well, you know, I grew up in similar country to what y'all talking about greasewood and rocks, you know, and desert and. Uh... When I went off to East Texas to go to college, uh, I, I told him my dad had 150,000 acres leased. And of course I had a big hat and high top boots. And again, I didn't blend in real good. And and they, they said, you're an idiot. You didn't have 150,000, you had 1,500. And I said, no, no, I, I, I was a part of 150,000 acres, but your 1,500 acres could have more cows on it than our 150,000, right? Yeah. But people don't understand the space, you know, for the most part. Yeah, you know that's an interesting to define. You know, a big ranch, right? No, I mean you can you can define it by numbers of cattle, or you know how much how how big the perimeter of the ranch actually is. Which in this country, you know, there's I don't know how many million acre ranches, but there are a lot of BLM ground. You know where. Down your way, you know, you got a hundred thousand or three hundred thousand acre deeded ranch. That's a whole different deal, you know. Yeah. I mean, there's not that much deeded ground in this area, and you know, then there's places, you know, the value of the ranch and you know the this, that, and the other. But yeah, you know, when somebody says the biggest ranch in you know United States, well, what defines that? There's a lot yeah. of different ways of defining that. Because your BLM BLM leases can last for. 
long time, right? I mean, they're long-term leases, so it's it's almost like you own it or, or not. Well, yeah, it's uh, originally the homesteads were granted uh, a right to the open range. Well, the open range definition has changed through the years, especially since the BLM was enacted. And the, and the BLM was actually, Taylor Grazing Act is, is what it started out as, was actually uh, promoted by the ranchers because the transient herds were overgrazing, mm. somewhat like in the movies. You know, they'd mm-hmm. come in from out of state with sheep or cattle and overgraze the homesteaders and starve them out. Right. And so the homesteaders, <clears throat> you know, the, the local ranchers, got together and told the government, hey, you uh, you uh, promised us, you know, grazing on the open range to, you know, part of the homestead. You know, we built our house, we raised our crop, we met all the requirements, and and now these transient herds are helping themselves to the grass you promised us. Yeah. So that's what enacted the Taylor Grazing Act in 1934, I believe it was, early 30s, whatever. And uh, so that run out all the transient herds. You had to own land to graze the open and uh so then you know of course the recreationists got in and in the 60s and 70s you know and by the 80s they you know kind of helped themselves to a lot of a lot of ground and the the um uh a lot of other environmental groups you know pushed the ranchers out and you know and whatnot so now it's the rules the rules have changed and the use of the they call it your public land now. It used to be, maps. It used to be listed as vacant ground. Nobody claimed it, hmm. you know. So it's changed a lot. It's a lot more competitive. You know, the recreationists are competing, and they don't like stepping on cow turds, you know, in the in the trails. But you know, they don't have to walk on the cow trails, but they, <laughs> they do. You know, <laughs> anyway, that's right. this is, this is kind of like getting getting in with the COVID. But that's it. <laughs> <laughs> politics and religion, and that's what it is is politics but uh yeah that's a quick history of of the blm or the taylor grazing but it started out as a a right just like we have water rights and we have uh, property rights we had grazing rights and now they call them grazing privileges you know they, they changed the definition or the wording uh but which kind of changes the definition so yeah anyway yeah the ranchers basically have lost part of their property that my ancestors, you know, I'm fifth generation on both sides, maternal and paternal, you know, and they was out here basically fighting Indians and fighting all the elements and everything else, you know, to, to develop this land. And uh, now, you know, a lot of those rights have, have been lost. Wow. And that could be a pain in the butt. Texas, you just have to have a lot of money. They need to buy as much as you want. Jeff Bezos has done that. He's bought plenty of it, right? Mm-hmm. We were surrounded by you know, um, 100, 200 acre deeded properties. Uh, the, the ranch my dad had leased, which was 150,000. And he, Bezos bought all of it and every little thing close to him. He's bought the whole dang region, basically, you know. And it's, it's, a, it's a crazy amount of property and he's shooting rocket ships off of it now, which is cool, whatever he wants to do, I guess, you know. Kind of sad for all of the, the old history of the cows and everything that, that was there, but. It's yeah. all good. It's all good. Well, interesting. So this property that that this has been in the family, say your uncle uh, had that property, and 
but the place, but it's not the place you grew up on, right? No, uh, like I say, my family's been here for since the 1860s, <clears throat> which you go back east, that doesn't sound like anything, but you know, the mining didn't come into this country until, uh, until about 1860 is when a lot of the big mines were developed. Uh, and even after the Civil War, before, you know, it was really pushed to develop this country. But before that, the, the French made a quick sweep through here in the 1830s and 40s, you know, with the beaver trapping and whatnot. But they exhausted that and left and the, it sit idle, you know, for another 20 years or whatever that would be. Uh, but yeah, uh, they built a hydroelectric dam on the Snake River Strike Dam that covered up my granddad's uh, granddad's property and my granddad's dad and two of his brothers. So the most of the old homesteads that the blacks uh, settled on is under under the Strike Dam Reservoir now. So those old ranches aren't in existence anymore but but they migrated from the bruno valley in the winter uh, to the waihe mountains in the in the summer and that's where they they were somewhat nomad uh they spent most of their time most all their time in the summer months uh in the mountains with their livestock and and then migrated back uh to bruno in the winter which is the mountains are like five six thousand feet and and bruno's uh Actually, where the reservoir is, is 2,500 feet. So it's a pretty mild climate uh, for for this area. And when I say this area, you know, for 100 miles around, you know, hundreds of miles around, you can go south into Nevada and you gain elevation. You can go north from here, which you're losing elevation going down the Snake River, but you're, you're going north, which makes a, a little bit of difference. But you're also going through mountains, the Hell's Canyon, and whatnot before you come into the Columbia Basin in Washington. And that climate's a lot like Bruno, but between here and there, you're going through a lot of mountains. So you go 100 miles in any direction, you're going to run into more winter. This is this is a pretty mild climate here. That wouldn't hurt my feelings. Yeah. <laughs> well, we have seasons. That's a nice thing. You know, about the time you get tired of the heat, you know, you get fall coming around. About the time you get tired of all the flies, well, you get a good frost, and and then winter comes, you know. And about the time you get tired of the cold, well, spring comes around and starts all over again. <laughs> uh, that is cool. I, I, we just kind of hover around hot, I think. But... <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing about y'all's weather down there. <laughs> y'all's, Yeah. <laughs> You know, I I had a place down there and lived down there for five years and uh, spent quite a bit of time other than that down there working. And them damn ice storms and northerns that come in, cold, God, that, that's harder to take than, than a consistent cold. I wasn't and the heat, like, the, the humidity is, is yeah, what feel breaker for me. The hot is hotter and the cold is colder. And people are, don't understand that. Can, can you say that one more time, Martin? Because I have several guys that I need, like Scott Hardy in Canada, that I need to tell. I need to repeat this, too, that the hot is hot and the cold is cold, right? No, I, I, the hot is, is hotter. Harder, right. And, and the, the cold, cold is colder. It's colder. Yeah. So, see? You what I learned. Say it, 
What I learned when I came to Texas, <clears throat> see, it gets to like 90 degrees here, and we have a constant uh, heat exchange off the mountains. Mm -hmm. And so the cold air from the mountains starts circulating down into the valleys here and creates a breeze. So anytime it gets around 90 degrees, you start getting a breeze, which feels like, you know, a few degrees cooler. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I didn't understand, and I still can't understand in Texas, well, any of them southern states, is you can get in the shade up here and it's a few degrees cooler. Yeah, no. So it can be 100 degrees or even more, but it feels like whatever, maybe 10 degrees cooler than it actually is because you always have a breeze and the shade is cooler than being in the sun. You get down there and at 100 degrees, it, I mean, it's, it's hard to bear when you're coming from this country and you can walk in the shade and it's just as hot. Yeah, it's just as hot. So growing up in West Texas, far West Texas in the desert, it was the same way. We we it, the wind blew like hell all the time, and and it was dry, you know. So you didn't have that humidity. Yeah. When I went to East Texas to school and all that stuff, I it like it killed me. I couldn't believe it. I was like, well, can we please? You can't breathe. You can't get in the shade and cool off. And the wind yeah. won't blow. And you're like, golly, yeah. Well, you, you were on the verge of sounding like a Texan there, actually. You've been there five years, and it's it, the hot is hotter and the cold is colder, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I tried not to let it rub off. Well, <laughs> no, I was down there in January uh, working horses, and I called my brother, and we had three ice storms in that month of January. This would have been an 09 or somewhere along in there. And here it is, Bruno, 60 degrees, sunshine, no wind, which we can get wind in the spring, just like West Texas. But uh, And I thought, what the hell am I doing in Texas, freezing my ass off <laughs> when I could be in Bruno with a light jacket on? And people don't understand that. They think up north it's always cold. Yeah. Well, this isn't North Dakota. And this isn't Montana. You know, yeah. this is kind of a banana belt here and, and – uh, but it, it's more consistent. That's what's. We don't get a 10 or, you know, maybe a 20 degrees variance when a hot and a cold, you know, right. a, a colder or hotter streak comes through in the winter. But, oh, man, you can have 70 degrees variance down there and the northerns come in. Yeah. You know, it can, it can be 80 degrees, you know, one day in March or whatever, February, and then northerns come in and just. Cold. start freezing if you're working yeah your Just blood's amazing. thin your blood's thin right it's used to that warm weather and then all of a sudden here it comes and yeah. we're big old wimps on the cold i'm a, I, I used when i was a kid i thought the cold was cool no that's that not now <laughs> no well it might be if you can go back in the house whenever you want to but when you, have, <laughs> yeah, you right. have to stay out there because the livestock you know you're yeah. still doing whatever you're doing with the livestock that's you know you can't time out <laughs> well, as a bit and sperm maker, I get to stay inside, so it's cool. But still, yeah, work well. work smarter, not harder, huh? I guess so. Yes. I always put off building stuff in the shop or whatever, you know, until uh, bad weather comes along, and then and then you're you you're welcome catching up in the shop. Yeah, you're happy. <laughs> yeah, I think. Yeah, you do some work. of your own leather work and braid work and some of that kind of stuff you were, we were talking there last night about i didn't realize you did as much as you did martin 
Well, I hate to even bring it up in front of you guys, but <laughs> growing up, yeah, if you wanted some nice equipment, you you kind of had to build it because there wasn't any money to buy it. And and even then, there wasn't that many people around building it like there is, you know, with you guys' association and, you know, educating people and, and whatnot. There was just a few ranchers, basically, that I learned from. My uncle uh, went to Nevada and was a cow boss on a ranch down there for two different ranches for over 10 years or whatever. But on the one ranch, I think he was there for eight years. And and uh, the owner of the ranch was a fellow from California that uh, was a really good horseman. And he's actually in the Arnold Rojas books mentioned as one of the top horsemen of California. Anyway, my uncle worked for him. And his theory was if he bought the cowboys the silver to make silver bits uh and keep them in the shop at home they wouldn't be going to town partying and getting drunk and fist fighting and <laughs> coming home and all all that stuff so he encouraged them to make bits well uh my uncle he was in his kind of mid to late 20s then and he hired a lot of younger guys right off the ranches here in bruno to go down there to be on his crew well, a lot of them came back to this the same area, you know, to take up their dad's property later in life or whatever, or have their own property. So those are the guys I grew up around that was was making their their own spade bits and then you know silver bits and everything. And so the information was was pretty available, and most all of them had you know some somewhat of a blacksmith shop on their ranch, so you could go to their their ranch and and uh, after school or something and get get some lessons. I made some bits and whatnot. Again, I hate to bring that up in front of you guys, but uh, they they did function and, you know, there was the balance and there was the correctness and, you know, they was real meticulous yeah. that way. And uh, same way as rawhide braiding, you know, I mean, there was a, the same kind of deals, the ranchers and, and most of the ranchers here went out and worked on as cowboys, buckaroos on, on ranches in Nevada or, or this area or wherever. Uh, as, as young men, and then again, you know, they later in life in their 30s or whatever, they got their own ranches, and and so these ranchers around Bruno, there was there was a, you didn't have to go far. I won't say plenty, that's all relative, but you didn't have to go far to find somebody that was a pretty decent rawhide braider or a bit maker, mm -hmm. and uh, of course, you know, we made our own head stalls and pretty much everything, but our own saddles. I didn't, you know, there's there's a handful of saddle makers within reach, but but about every other every other rancher, you know, is either a bit maker or a rawhide braider. And so, you know, as a as a young kid, you know, that's all I wanted to do is grow up and be like those guys, you know, and and you know, they were all decent horsemen, you know, to to exceptional horsemen, you know, at whatever level. But they all made their own their own gear pretty much, except their saddles and shod their own horses, you know. I mean, it was pretty self sufficient. And hire somebody to come to the ranch and and do something you know like that you know your horsemanship and your your gear was all you know you've done that all yourself so that's kind of what I grew up with but uh, you know later in, in life you know I got busy doing other things ranching and and whatnot and I still enjoy doing it the uh, braiding and I do a little repair work but when I grow up.
if that's something I want to do. I got a shop and I, I got all the silver working tools and, and everything and uh, braiding tools. and But it's, it's more of a hobby now instead of a necessity when I do some braiding. But you know, I made hair ropes and riatas and well, not quite a bit when I was buckarooing, but you get a family and I never had a shop in a lot of the cow camps. So you got kids hanging around here, you know, stabbing each other with your Marlin spike and <laughs> your leather knives and things like that. So you kind of got to be careful about yeah. doing your leather work in your front room, you know, in the, in the family room. And, and so I kind of got away from it when the kids were growing up and then, uh, like I say, I just got busy with a lot of other things in life and, pretty hard to pack any of your knives and stuff on the airplane when I'm doing clinics and stuff. They, <laughs> yeah. they kind of frown on that, even though there's a lot of time sitting around the airports, you could be tying, tying yeah. buttons on something. You know, and, and it's, it is um, what you described there, Martin, is something like the group, the TCA has worked on all along, but, but making a living doing it right. Is there, there was, you were feeding a family and trying to figure out how to make it all go. And, and, uh, the bits and spurs or the braiding it, it, there was easier ways to go about it in, in a lot of ways yeah. and so not that it was i mean it's just i it's not just about the money the, the the tasks of the day and the chores and obligations that were already there didn't allow time to make bits and spurs or, or the braiding but uh, you know, it, well it the other something. thing you know in my granddad's generation and even my dad's generation you know my dad was born in the early 1930s you know, so when he grew up, there wasn't this recreation world. Mm. You know, there was the horses and this gear and everything was for working people. It's after the World War II, you know, that the recreation, you know, the horse shows and everything really got to be an industry. Before that, it was just a living. I'm not yeah. saying there wasn't a horse show and a rodeo, right. but it wasn't like it is now. And, I mean, that's what you know, supports my business today and you guys' business. It's it's not the working cowboys. No. You know, you might that's a that's a very small percent. It's the recreation world, you know, the the people that have a you know job in town and or retired from a successful career or business or whatever. You know, those those are, you know, my clients and your clients for the most part, right? Absolutely. And yeah. I, I often say this, Martin, that, that I, I've got to get your crew wanting my bits and spurs in order mm -hmm. for the recreation crowd to actually buy it. Cause your, your crew, you, y'all create the credibility for me that, Hey, I wish I could buy that. You can't more than likely, you know, you have, you could give it to me though. That's right. Absolutely. You could give me a bunch of this stuff. and <laughs> <laughs> It's exactly right. But, Test drive it. but it is a, um, you know, that is where the credibility comes from is, is back at the bottom of the barrel. You know, the poor guys that are using it every day and working their butts off. That That's where the credibility comes from, what it is we do. So you have to bake the cake. You have to do it properly. And then, of course. Well, and that's the thing, you know, about uh, keeping that balance between the, the artistic part of it, the artwork mm -hmm. and the function. Absolutely. You know, and I see that in, in you guys' association some is some things get so exotic it's beautiful craftsmanship beautiful yeah. artwork i go that doesn't work right you know i judge the bit making contest in elk with the poetry thing and and try to keep a long story shorter you know i said all right what's what's the criteria here what how, how what's the scorecard look like and basically they said uh function 
there was craftsmanship, function, and uh, originality or uh, tradition or something like that. And uh, so I thought, well, this is easy. I went around and rolled crickets and all the bits, and there was only two or three of them that even worked. Mm. The rest of them hung up. <clears throat> they didn't make any noise. Uh, they just rolled and everything. And I thought, all right, that just eliminated all of those because they don't function. Uh, it's not tradition. That cricket is one of the most important things of a mouthpiece as far as I'm concerned. And a lot of people don't understand that that keeping that horse's jaw soft, the yep. cricket helps keep the tongue soft, the tongue keeps the jaw soft, the jaw keeps the pole soft. If the pole's soft, the horse can be soft all the way through. That is a mental connection. And if you don't have a cricket that functions, that, that creates that vibrating sensation, the horse ain't going to work it. And that's that's a different kind of a horse than than what the old vaqueros were mm -hmm. riding, and what I've learned to appreciate in horsemanship. And so, anyway, that kind of got off on a rabbit trail. But no, that's cool. But that's the importance of of the function of the bit, you know. And then, of course, there's a balance, and there's you know all this and that, you know, that from the horse's perspective, and that's what gets lost with a lot of artists that I see. And if you can talk about braiding or anything else. You know, it's beautiful if you're going to hang it on the wall. You know, and it might have your brand on it, it might have your name and address on it, you know, and gold letters or whatever. But if the horse doesn't uh, accept it and doesn't work in it, it's not awesome. horse equipment. I totally agree with you. I totally agree. <laughs> and, I, and I'll tell you something else that, that gets me too. And, and yes, I, I'm the art guy, right? I'm, I'm the weird art kid. But if I build a bit or a pair of spurs and it doesn't first look like a bit or a pair of spurs, which can be a lot of different styles in a lot of different regions. But if it doesn't look like that to me from across the room, then I've missed the ball, right? I've missed, yep. I've missed the whole thing is, is if, if you look at something across the room, you go, oh, wow, that's really pretty. And then you get up there and say, oh, well, that's a bit. Well, that's backwards, right? That's yep. totally backwards to me is you have to be across the arena and go, look at that bit. And then you get closer and get closer. Oh, wow. That, that's a really pretty bit. Um, yeah. That's the way it has to happen for me. Well, it's it's the same thing with some of this artwork that, uh, you know, and your dad, I, I think everybody knows, you know, he's a he's a cowboy and he's an artist. Mm -hmm. You can tell he's a cowboy from his artwork. You know, it's really? like Charlie Russell. Yeah. You could tell he'd been there and done it. You know, the way the stirrup brothers hang, yeah. the way, you know, the, the rope, the laddie goes, the whatever. Yeah. You can tell that they was there, you know, and there's some yeah. artists you look at it, you go, that doesn't even work that way. It <laughs> right. can't work that way. Right. You know, here sense. he's got his dallies underneath his reins and off the wrong side of his horse. <laughs> and that, that, that's not how it's done. It can't yeah. function that way. Yeah. You know, their bridles are on upside down or something like that. Well, you know, they, they knew there was a bridle on there, but they can't remember exactly how it, you know, hung or anything. Well, and they went ahead and drew a picture. And, you know, there's some famous, famous artists that it's like, you obviously never been there and done that enough to know there's how a, things function. There's a pretty fancy bit and spur book that was, that was put together about 20 years ago. And the rain rings are pointed forward in the horses, the, the, the bridles in the horse's mouth and the rain rings are pointed <laughs> forward. And I, I'm not even sure how they got that in there. <laughs> interesting. I seen a famous photographer. He obviously had this, uh, this model, you know, uh, pose for this, and the bridle is backwards in the horse's mouth. Yeah, yeah, that's what this one was. <laughs> Dang it.
Well, he sold a lot of pictures, but not the Cowboys. <laughs> yeah, not the Cowboys. And that's a big, that's always been a big, um, I mean, it, it's no, I'm too dang expensive to be experimental function wise, right? I mean, it's just, you're not going to come to me and say, hey, Willie, let's uh, let's do this, this, and this function wise in order in, in order to, to see if it works. When you come to me to order a bit, more than likely it's the <laughs> one that you've been using your pet bit. We're going to make it really fancy, work the same in the way you go. But it's my responsibility as a bit and sperm maker to be able to take whoever work, walks in my shop and create something functionally that fits them in their world, right? Because yeah, um, and and it's very important that I understand that because my hands aren't going to pull on it. So we don't get to build my favorite bit ever. We get to build your favorite bit, and I have to understand how to make that work. Um, but which can scare a lot of people, and you hear a lot of people say, "Well, I'm a sperm maker because the bits scare them." And, and that's probably okay, but, uh, you know, it, it's, it is the responsibility in my mind to, to make sure that I know yeah. how it works and fit the individual for sure. So if you're making bookcase ends or, you know, place to hang your curtain rods or something like that, and you want it to look like a bit, that's fine. It doesn't have to be balanced. It doesn't have to have a cricket, you know, that functions and oh, it, it is art. It is something different, but if you're making horse gear, you're representing horse gear. Yeah. <laughs> you know to where the the horse will accept it and the stuff that's that's as important yeah. i mean what's outside that cheek horse doesn't know doesn't care right doesn't make any difference to him you know that's strictly that's strictly for us that's yeah. the silver and you know all that you know y'all make fun of us about our silver and, and all that up here <laughs> but you know that's part of the pride and you know this that's that's part of the pride of you know, being part of that, that, that industry, you know, making the horses and making the gear. And, you know, traditionally they spent a lot of time braiding rawhide reins, for example, you know, they call them yeah. Romo reins down where you're at, but you mm -hmm. know, the bridle reins when I was growing up, rawhide reins were reins with a Romal, not Romals. There's only one, one Romal on a set of bridle reins. Right. I'm not sure where they got a pair of, Miles, but how about uh, a pair of bits you've heard him say a pair of, i'm gonna get a pair of bits explain that to me <laughs> i can't i'm sorry i make fun of everyone <laughs> of them that says it <laughs> not a pair of I bits i never did understand you know me I, neither. And, unless they're talking about driving horses you know and, and uh you got you need a pair of bits for a, for a team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I never understood that. <laughs> I pick on all of them that do it. <laughs> it's so good. Well, it is a, you know, it, it it is, it is important, and it's fun. That's the fun part of ranking a bridle bit for me. But you know, well, I think I I really admire what you guys are doing. You know, with your association and everything, and you've took it to another level and you've kind of brought it back so to speak too because it was not only becoming a lost art but but the finer work was becoming lost too you know it got real basic a lot of the basic stuff you know come from south of the border mm -hmm. can you hear me Schwartzy? i can hear you martin's stuck it froze up down there. Penis. Oh, there you there are. There he is. You're back. He, he built he built bits as a you know, not as a hobby, but you know after work, but he couldn't support his family making bits. Right, <clears throat> and that's pretty much the way 
you know, everything went out here. And so, you know, then it started coming from south of the border. Not that there isn't some good good hands down there, but they they know the gringo market. And most of the gringos, especially in the recreation world, didn't know the difference. Right. You know, so uh, then that created this niche for for you guys to step in and and kind of bring it bring it back. You know, and that's I think it's really great what you guys are doing wow. to bring bring the quality back and and you know. You, you got to make sure the quality doesn't get ahead of the function, and you guys are doing that. That's it great. All, I don't care how how pretty your <laughs> wedding cake is, if it tastes like crap, nobody's going to eat it. So yeah, you, you got to make sure you bake the cake properly. And you you just described Martin there that I mean, Carrie and the founding members. That's what was the whole purpose, right, Carrie? Get together and function is absolutely paramount, but you can also make uh, function very very pretty and create an, an appreciation for that. Well, I've maintained for years that that uh, at least for me, and maybe not for everybody, but the art part of what I do is it been the easiest part. Uh, it I haven't had any difficulty satisfying customers from an art artistic standpoint, but uh, but the function, I'm telling you what, that's a that's a slippery deal. That'll keep you awake at night. All the functional aspects of a saddle, it's highly subjective was- and. Uh, it's it's been for me the hardest part and uh but that's there's you engage it and uh, it's also a fun part because there's never you're never going to have it all figured out so function part is i i really really enjoy that i can spend the rest of my life and still feel like i've only scratched the surface well martin didn't you ride one of carry saddles for a while here not in the recent years, and is your butt okay? Are you uh, horses back? Well, right? uh, <laughs> are you, are you, you want to go there? <laughs> so I uh, actually got a client that that bought two of his saddles and and left them here, and I I rode them and and kind of broke them in. Uh, no, they're they're good. They're, they're really comfortable, and uh, the wife's saddle was a little small for me. The stirrups didn't quite go long enough, you know. Uh, but no, it was it was great. It's something I want to go back to though. We're talking about the balance between function, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from the outside looking in, it seems to me like uh, you struggle, makers struggle uh, getting. To the level that you guys are is an artist and where do you get the experience in the saddler where do you get the experience using those bits and those saddles and everything you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. you take somebody that uh cowboyed all their life and at whatever point you know they got injured or retired or for whatever reason you know they they take up saddle making is a full-time deal <clears throat> for example or bits or anything else and they might have dabbled in it like myself, you know, through the years to whatever level. But then when they get to a point, then they do it full time. They know what a comfortable saddle is. And right. they know, uh, you know, how the horn's supposed to be wrapped and how the stirrup leather's supposed to hang. And, you know, all all this detail because they've been places where it didn't function right. Or they've kind of got their own little niche about improving the way the saddle makers, you know, done their saddles or something made their own modifications and bits and everything. But like these guys that uh, 
you're doing these schools and that that's great but i think i think you got to be careful of these say college kids taking up you know the the tools in the schools that you guys are doing they don't have the experience they don't understand the function then getting to be the top artist they can be like not to mention names, but like some of these artists that we're talking about that, that draw pictures. Mm-hmm. Wonderful artists, give them an A on that, but you know, their horses, the bits are on upside down. Yeah. Yeah. No, <laughs> it, it, you're, you're spot on, Martin. And, and there was a time in my life where I was like, oh, maybe, maybe not. You have to be a, a part of that world, the horse, right? You, you know, you, you've had to create some wet saddle blankets, but I didn't, I, I think there's, probably more importance at my stage in the in the career now i think there's more importance to what you're saying there and and if if you if you don't have that experience so not all of us are lucky enough to grow up the way i did or the way you did um and i i mean i abandoned ship in the mid-20s well by 30 right i abandoned ship and and i rodeoed a little longer but it was it was all about full-time bits and spurs. And that's where the art aspect that you're talking about has to catch up is you have to commit to that in order to, you have to live yep. in the shop in order to, to have success there. But I was surrounded by the cowboy type that lived and breathed and refused to allow me to not understand the modifications that needed to be made in a functional piece of gear before I got started with my art. They, they, they insisted. So if you don't get the opportunity to be, cow puncher or horseback on a regular basis you better surround yourself with somebody that does and is and and you have to listen to them because it is and it and it's so as a bit maker every person that walks in my shop that's ridden a horse for 30 years is a self-appointed expert of how a bit's supposed to work and i'm not supposed to build a bit any other way well yeah I have to be careful there, right? Because because everybody <clears throat> rides a little differently and the regions create different scenarios of why things function the way they do. But um you so surround yourself with a bunch of them, right? And and be careful. You know, John Ennis told me this 10 minutes of bad advice can cost you 10 years of your career if you're not careful. So we gotta be right. careful who we listen to, but and go pick some people out and and follow, listen. No, it's it's a delicate balance. Not that it can't be done, <clears throat> but you got to keep your finger on the pulse there. Yes, like, you like do. Yeah. yeah and know who, you know, I mean, there's a lot of guys can talk the talk on the internet or down at the coffee shop or whatever, mm-hmm. but, you know, they, they, they're weekend helpers, you know, they never really wore out many saddles or right. made any, <clears throat> any good horses or, you know, was competitive when they went to town or I'm not saying any one of those you know, is has to be a qualification, but, you know, I mean, the good hands are, you know, there's a lot of consistencies, you know, and, and it doesn't matter what part of the country we're talking about. Good hands, a good hand. Like we said, but, safe, yeah, safe sort, sorting through them guys and not just getting the talkers. There's, I get a kick out of this, but, you know, every once in a while I drop in on the Facebook and stuff and all the damn <laughs> experts. There. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You guys get up. Oh, so you guys get off the internet. How many saddles have you wore out? <laughs> Pretty entertaining. <laughs> the the real cowboys of the world we never know because they're way off out in the boonies all by themselves doing it, doing what it is that they do. You don't, yep. you don't know about them. No, I've heard heard of some guys, you know, for years. So, you know, that 
maybe it was in this country and went to Arizona or, you know, whatever, but you know, their, their legend lives on, mm. you know, you might see a little burp about them in Western horsemen or something, but yeah, some of the top hands, you know, they, they never make the front page. They don't even make the back page, you know? So in, in, in my <laughs> world, Martin, um, John Ennis has not made a whole bunch of bits and he's made one bit in his whole life and he's made, several pair of spurs but he's probably the, the the greatest metal smith i've ever been around in my life it is mm -hmm. it is crazy what john can do with a piece of metal and and he's not going to nerd out on function of this bridal bit and all that stuff but when we talk metal smith he's the man yeah nobody knows who john who john is right he stays yeah. in his little shop works with his files and his rocks and rubs on metal all day long you know but it, yep. it, it that's his world and that's what he does and, and you'll find it in every every discipline out there there's there's that individual that just yeah they love what they do and that's all they do yeah no you well, dynamics have, have changed a lot over the last you know you talk about the importance of people knowing knowing the function of things and stuff like that but not that many years ago it that was when when you went to work for a shop you know the the old uh progression of getting up to the ascending to the level of craftsmen in a shop was starting with the sweeping the floors and all of that kind yep. of stuff and they wound up being classically trained for somebody it's like you said a moment ago martin is uh the fingers on the pulse do you have your fingers on the pulse well the pulse in in those shops were those experienced craftsmen who could were classically trained who couldn't mm -hmm could they knew function they had to know function they were yeah. out of business if they didn't have it but nowadays it's the era of the one-man shop everybody's kind of trying to figure the world out for themselves and and uh, that's a damn tall order for oh, everybody to kind of figure out instead of getting connected and that's what's changed i think in the last 25 30 years or so of course the tca has been part of that but is make information available to people in one-man shops so that they don't have to figure all of it out. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. Mm -hmm. Now you guys, uh, you know, you guys get together with your little conventions and get-togethers, you know, various types and everything, and exchange ideas. And, and uh, that's great. I went up to this, up the road here, this Dale Jeffries is a equine dentist, kind of one of the top guys that, he has a little get together, just an example of this. Uh, I think every year, but anyway, people that have done over a hundred thousand horses, there's the ten guys get together. And that's a million horses that they can talk about yeah. that they've. Hmm. And I thought, what well, that is a cool concept, you know. And you guys are kind of doing that to whatever extent, but but to get together, you know, and that's. That's what I like about some of these deals that I go to. You know, I went to a deal here in Gillen, Montana with Brian Newbert, uh, Joe Walters, and Nick Dowers was all there too. It was great. You know, I, they're all friends of mine. And, you know, I've worked with Brian and Joe, you know, through the years on, on ranches and stuff back, you know, in our younger days. And Nick, he's a generation younger, but uh, he kind of comes from the same background. But, but getting together and, you know, I watched their demonstrations and, like, well, there's some cool stuff, you know, maybe I used to do that or maybe, you know, I kind of, you know, need to do more of that or, or whatever, but it's, it's really great to, to exchange these ideas with, with other 
hate to say experts, but you know, other guys that are yep. you know making a living in the in the fields, you know, and what you guys are doing, that's 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 great, you know, because that's used to be, you know, that nobody wanted to share their secrets right. in the horsemanship or the craftsmanship. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that was like stealing chickens or something, you know, if you oh, yeah. somebody's <laughs> ID, you couldn't <laughs> well, it, it, Martin, it, it is one of the greatest parts of being a, a member of the group you know and so at 30 years old um i was still rodeoing and all that stuff and the philosophy was get in the truck with the winners if you'll get in the winner's truck then you'll you'll learn yeah. a lot and that's how i looked at the tca is, is that was the winner's truck and and i wanted to get in with them and it, it's been one of the greatest blessings i've ever had a silver spoon shoved down my mouth to become friends with the best in the world you know it's like yeah the, the inspiration and the energy that comes off of them is yeah. great. Well, there's a lot to be said. You know, you're only as good as the environment you put yourself in. You mm -hmm. know, and if you put yourself in an environment with, with people better than you, yeah. you know, in, in a trade, I'm talking, you know, yeah. you're, you, you've got an opportunity to get better. And, yeah. but, you know, a lot of these clinicians I see look around, you know, and they don't, they don't get out of their little puddle, you know, and, and they, <laughs> they think, you know, there's a big fish in a, in a little pond. But you're surrounded by people that know less than you, at least about the horsemanship. They might be doctors and lawyers and everything. Not right. that they're dumb people or anything. But you're surrounding yourself with beginners, you know, unknowledgeable people. They're sucking on you for your knowledge. Where are you going to get refueled? That's right. You know, mm -hmm. Pretty quick, you get to thinking you're an expert or something. And, you know, I, I do these roping deals and everything. And people go, oh, you know, you're good. No, you need to come to my world. <laughs> and some of these competitions that I go to, they take my money. You know, I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of guys here in this country that's better hands than I am. You know, I'm just I'm just out, you know, making a living, you know, teaching. But that doesn't mean that I'm the expert. Pop always told me he said never never try to impress your customers. They always will be impressed. But you pick half a dozen of your peers your, that you really respect, and those are the only ones that matter when you when to impress right if they told you you did yeah. a good job then then uh then it's doing something so now we add facebook to it so you don't even have to be friends with everybody they just tell you you're the greatest you know so, yeah you're you're piercing your you know I, I put a high priority on trying to keep keep touch with the grandkids and the family and everything which i i'm i, I wish i had more time I'm, and i'm trying to get to a position where i do have more time before they grow up but but I think you know you got to keep your your neighbors and your family close by too. Absolutely. Well, that's one of the things I've always admired about you, Martin, is your willingness to collaborate with a wide range of people. And and I don't pay that close attention to all the clinicians and stuff, but I don't see that happening out there very much with other clinicians. So I thought I think well, that's like, cool. Like you guys, you know, I I don't. Uh, I'm not afraid to share it. I'm not, uh, I, you know, I'd make a joke and say I stole everything I got. Well, I'm not afraid to let somebody else steal yeah. stuff from me too, you know? And, and again, that's what I admire about you guys is sharing this knowledge and everything and not taking it to the grave. Like, mm -hmm. like, you know, used, used to be kind of, you know, it was hard to get information from these guys. You really had to prove yourself and, you know, they'd, take one or two people under their wing and that's that's all that you know they pass it on to maybe that's sad to me and, and i've learned so much over the years teaching and sharing my knowledge you know i mean people <clears throat> that, are, that are just getting started I had a farrier in the shop one time and 
when I bratted buttons on spurs, it was invariably I'd end up with a black fingernail, you know, and it just pinched the crap out of my fingers all the time. And he was in there and he's beating the heck out of a spur button, not hitting his finger one bit, holding it in a manner that I never dreamed of. And I said, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? You, you got to smash your finger. That's the greatest thing I've ever seen, you know, but there, <laughs> there's just a ton of examples of teaching over the years like that, that, that things are shown to me as, as I'm sharing my whole world and i have no secrets in my shop right it's all i'll give my designs away here you go it's still gonna look like they did it good battery yeah. different from me it still looks like they did it so yep uh, i'm, I'm bashful that way yep. oh, well well Schwartzy, you think we should let martin go to work and make a living i'm yeah, still I waiting reckon. for daylight still waiting for daylight <laughs> yeah we started rather early here which is kind of cool yeah. earlier for y'all than me yeah yeah yeah, it's been fun catching up. I don't, I don't, we're on a different deal. We're on Zoom. We'll see how this thing works out, but I don't know how long we've been going. Long uh, enough, probably, over, huh? Over an hour. Over an hour. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, not much. Well, it took us a little bit to <clears throat> get, get jump started here, but <clears throat> yeah, you're, you're right at an hour. I don't, I mean, your, your story has probably been told a whole bunch, Martin, but we may have to come recircle this deal one time. Let your story be told. We we averaged about all kinds of crap, other than you. <laughs> yeah, we covered all the the weather issues with Idaho. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that that covered pretty good this time. Is that oh, is that geography? Is that part of our age? You know, old men like to talk about weather all the time. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, keep up the good work, guys. All right. Well, thank yeah. you, Martin. Hope to see you in Northeast Texas sometime soon. I'll be down there. I'll be down there in a couple of weeks. Yeah. Cool. All right. Thank you All guys. Right. Take care. Thanks, sir. Adios. Mm -hmm.